Hope you enjoyed your uh, festivities this week as you probably spent some time with family and friends and, and enjoyed our Thanksgiving time. <clears throat> We're wrapping up our series here of the I Am uh, statements of Jesus and, and describing really who he is and giving an identification of, of the, the character and the quality uh, of, of our Messiah and, and how we can look at him. We've been spending all of our time in the book of John. We're going to jump now to another book that John wrote, but it's called Revelation. And we discover the final statement that we're going to look at, which is the I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And there are a lot of business consultants out there today in today's market. We've even got life coaches. I've got friends who have gone into that aspect of a career, and they're helping people learn how to become productive on a daily basis within their businesses, within their families, within whatever environment they are. Now, back in the late 80s and the early 90s, you might remember the name Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey was on the speaking circuit promoting his motivational book that was, that was about life and about productivity. He entitled it, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Now, in habit number two, he makes this statement. He says, begin with the end in mind. And then he adds, if, if your ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step you, get, every step you take gets you to the wrong place faster. And really, that's a true thing. You've got to, you've got to know where you're going to go in order to get there. Uh, and so sometimes we've become so accustomed to just plugging things into our GPS that we think it's going to take us wherever we are uh, and where we need to be. Well, GPS sometimes is not always accurate either. All right? I've, I've, yeah, I've, I've followed it to the middle of nowhere. And <laughs> literally out in the middle of nowhere. And, and, and I, I, it just, it's amazing what is there. If we don't have an end goal or a vision of what something's going to be like at the end of, the, of our time, and regardless of all the clever and ingenious things that we make plans to do or whatever and, and how we work it out, all of that is not going to affect any lasting change. We've got to know what the end result is in order to finalize it and get there. We really need to understand all the expectations, really, from the very beginning of the thing all the way to the end. And so we can move through that. Now, in, in Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 21, God, in, in Jesus, um, as he's identified, he recognizes that he is the alpha and the omega for us, the beginning and the end. And we begin to look at all that. Now, in the Greek uh, language, their alphabet begins with alpha, and it ends in omega. And so it's the first letter is alpha, the last letter is omega. In other words, God is the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He is all-encompassing within that. He is absolutely the end of all things as well as its beginning. Nothing, absolutely nothing, comes from outside of Him. It all has originated within Him. And everything somehow will end in him, in his, his presence, in his will, and his design. Paul writes to us this in, first, in, in the first chapter of his book, Colossians, to the church there. He says to us, he is the image of the invisible God. Well, who is? Jesus is. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now listen to this, for by him... All things were created 
in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus. Paul really sets it all together there. I mean, there's nothing apart from Christ. He's it. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the fulfillment of all things. The prophet Isaiah put it this way when he was writing in Isaiah chapter 44 verse 6 he says thus says the Lord the king of Israel and his redeemer the Lord of hosts I am the first and the last besides me there is no God so in other words since everything comes from God and nothing will will outlast God therefore it is God And it's only God that really matters. So when we're trying to identify Jesus, and we've looked at a variety of ways in which he has called himself, this pulls it all together. He is everything. He's all that you need and even more. And he is that which holds us together in this life. We exist in the constraints of time. We're finite beings. He isn't. And that's something I really struggle with grasping my mind around because all I know is time. I know what time it is this morning when I woke up at 3. You know, I, I know what time it is when, when I bet to bed at, at 11. Yeah, I, I understand all those things. It's like, wow, time, time, time. I know how many years that we've been married. That's 35. All right, I remember that. I know all these different things, but everything about us is based upon time. Our lives, all the variables of life, they're constrained in time. And we're destined, I think, however, if we think we can change things outside of time, I think it's going to be a rude awakening for us. Whether it be good luck or bad luck or, or world forces or, or evil realms or kingdoms that are out there, nothing of those, none of those things can determine our path or our problems. God in his sovereignty, because he is all things, since he is from beginning to end, is the one who has the ability to help determine those things. Scripture says, in our heart we set our course, but the Lord determines our steps. We've got to be faithful to him. You see, he is the one who determines, who controls and enables the will of man and his mastery over his, our will. When we learn to submit ourselves to, to Jesus, we become, I think, more satisfied and more content in life because we're relying upon Him to meet our needs. This world doesn't do that. This world can't meet your needs. Only He can. And so it's important for us to look to Him. Ultimately, through our surrender to Jesus, we become fruitful. 
Rob spoke about that last week as he talked about the vine and the branches and and we've got to stay connected to him because when we're in him we have the ability to produce fruit and to do many great things. We bring glory to God by walking in obedience to him and producing these fruit. So here in Revelation chapter 1 beginning in verse 7 and 8 is where we're going to find this statement. John presents some spiritual truths here about God that display his control and his sovereignty over all things, over what was, what is, and what yet is to come, as he puts it. The beginning and the end can be observed through, I think, a few things. One, necessity. Two, glory. Three, the the scope and response. And, And finally, the certainty of the Alpha and the Omega. So how do we do this? Well, the beginning and end is all summarized up here in the necessity of the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, He is coming. That's that first little statement right there. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see and, and even those who pierced Him, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Now, after the introduction here in Revelation, verses 1 through 6, we get to verse 7, which changes into this idea of the prophecy aspect of of things, that the the vision's beginning to be laid out for us. And this verse really is composed of two Old Testament quotes. Uh, It looks at a passage, a couple passages of the Old Testament. We'll dig into those just a little bit. But he kind of really brings it into focus here. The first part of the citation is found in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. When Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days who was presented before him. Now, that verse in the Old Testament, its context refers to the enthronement of the Son of Man. That's interesting that Jesus liked to refer to himself as the Son of Man. Some have suggested that's his favorite name for himself. But he's enthroned over all nations in Daniel. He becomes the king of all nations, the king of all kings. And after God's judgment of evil, we see him placed there in, in, in Daniel chapter 7 as well. Now he uses this word at the very beginning, he says, behold, in Revelation chapter 1. Behold, I mean it's an imperative call for us to, to get our attention to look at something. So he wants you to stop what you're doing, whatever it is, and he wants you to look. So he says, behold. Now fittingly, the first thing that John calls our attention to is the glorious truth that Jesus is coming. Now, now we speak about that, you know, the second coming of Christ. We speak about He's coming again, His return. But He wants you to really understand this. Jesus is coming. And His coming suggests that, really, the word that's used there suggests that He's already on His way. I mentioned that a few weeks back, that it's as if He's already gotten up and He's heading out the door. And, and like Elvis, He's left the building, all right? He's he's on his way here. Jesus is coming. Because it's it's an action that's taking place in the present tense here. Now the term coming one or expected one is often referred to as, as the one who is the Messiah. He's the one they've been looking forward to. The one who's supposed to come. The one who they've been expecting all these long times. Now in Matthew uh, chapter 11 verse 2 and 3... John the Baptist, when he was in prison uh, awaiting his beheading, 
though he didn't realize that. His disciples were communicating with him about what Jesus was doing. And so here we says, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciples and he said to him, to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for someone else, another? I mean, are you the coming one? Are you the one that we're supposed to expect? Or really, is there somebody else? And in John chapter 6, just after Jesus had fed the 5,000 people of the fish and, and the bread, now they've come, they've come and searched for him again. They've wandered all the way across the, the, the top of the, the, the Sea of Galilee searching for him, and they've come and they've found him. And when the people saw the signs that he had done, they said to them, This is indeed a prophet who is to come into the world. And in John 11, verse 27, as Jesus was getting ready to bring Lazarus up out of the tomb. And he was talking with Martha about life and about death and about eternal life. And that even if you die, you can live if you believe in him. So she says to him, she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. So John wants us to look and to behold that Jesus is coming. Now, there are many reasons why Jesus came. But I think there are just as many reasons why he is going to return. I mean, the Father promises that he's going to send him again. Jesus himself promised that he would return. The Holy Spirit is a promise, is a guarantee of his return as well. And, and so we think about this. He's got a plan for the church. He's got a plan for Israel. He's got a plan for those who do evil in this world. He's got a plan for Satan. He's got all these things that are laid out before him. And also he wants to reward those who are faithful. He's got to come again. So we need to know that certainty he is coming. We also know that in humiliation and in his incarnation, that demands him to come back. I mean, when he first came, he was rejected. He was reviled. He was hated. He was abused. And he was executed as a common criminal. But that's not the way the story ends. I mean, all we have to do is take a look back at that kangaroo court that was set up there in the, in, in the high priest's house. To, to try him and convict him of blasphemy so they could get him hung. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 62 through 68. And we'll discover that the high priest stood up and he said to Jesus, Have you no answer to make? I mean, we've, we've drugged you in here in the middle of the night. Don't you have anything to respond to us? We, we've made some accusations against you. Are you not going to speak? He says, What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And listen to Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, well, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest, at those words, he tore his clothes, all right, and, and he said, He's uttered blasphemy. And what further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What's your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. 
And then they spit in his face and they struck him. Some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? See, Caiaphas was trying to get Jesus to admit to some accusations that were charged against him, which primarily was insurrection against Rome, proclaiming himself to be a king, and so they could go up against him and and take him before Pilate, and because of treason and, and, and insurrection, he'd be executed by the Romans. But they don't get him in that. See, in verse 64, Jesus is not only the Messiah whom they had anticipated, but he is the Son of Man whom the prophets had foretold would come, and that they would come on the clouds. And he would be there in power and might. Well, he didn't do that the first time, did he? It's inconceivable that the last view that the world would have of the Son of Man would be him bleeding and dying upon a cross. They're going to get to see him totally different. Now, the second way that the beginning of the end can be seen is through the glory of the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 again. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. All right? Clouds. I mean, in, in Scripture, clouds frequently symbolize the presence of God. Let me kind of throw some things out for you. It was a cloud that was used in the manifestation of God's presence with Israel during their wilderness wanderings, all right? There in that experience they had, there was always a cloud that would lead them by day. But it wasn't just that. At the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, when Moses went up, the cloud came and settled upon the mountain, and it signified to them that God was there. And that his glory was there. And so Moses would go up and be hidden in the cloud. And when he would come out, he would be radiant. When the Lord communicated and to speak with God, both in the tabernacle and in the temple, a cloud would be present there at times when God would be present. And it would let Israel know he is there with them. Jesus, we understand in the New Testament, ascended in the clouds. And the disciples stood there looking up there, Acts chapter 1. We also know that believers will ascend with him in the clouds on the day of his coming, as 1 Thessalonians 4.17 tells us. Now, in the return of Jesus to this world, clouds will be present in his descent. Now, I don't think it's going to be those nice, fluffy little clouds. I think it's really going to be, you know, these, these huge supercell clouds. I mean, it's going to be a cloud that is going to get your attention. You're not going to just ignore it like we do a lot of times. And I don't think it's going to be such a fluffy experience when he comes this next time. It's going to be one where he's going to get your attention. He's going to come with power. He's going to come with might. And he's going to come to destroy those who have been his enemies. And I think there's going to be some fear and trepidation for those who do not believe in him. You see, the appearance of a blazing glory of Jesus along with the lesser brilliance of this innumerable host of heaven that will come with him, and the redeemed who shall accompany him will both be an indescribable and a yet a terrifying event. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty on high. Now, when, when Jesus is pictured in this, when he's pictured in the glory and his power and his majesty of who he really is, then I think we get a good understanding of what it's going to be like. The return of Jesus is described in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 29. And Jesus, in his own words, puts it this way. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven a sign of the Son of Man, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the earth. Now that's an interesting return. And I don't think we are going to be able to miss it, discredit it, ignore it, because it is going to be so significant, it's going to have our attention. Now, in my, the notes of my ESV study Bible, this passage notes make this statement. Whether these events are to be understood as being primarily literal or primarily figurative, it is clear that these will be earth-shattering events through which all creation will be radically transformed at the return of Christ. And as regards to the people of earth, it infers that they will experience either a sorrow that produces repentance or a great sadness of regret in light of the coming judgment. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, <clears throat> during one of the Crusades back in the uh, 12th century, 13th century, it is told of Philippe Auguste II. He was the king of France. He reigned during the, the 12th and 13th century, right at the end of the beginning there. And, and before he went out into one of the battles of the Crusades, this is what is told. That he walked up and he removed his crown from his head and he placed it there on, on a table that had this inscription on it, to the most worthy. Now he gathered around him his nobles and his knights and his fighting men and he then began to tell them, we're about to go into battle and I no longer want you to think of me as your king and as your commander, but as another man who's willing to fight. And then he made this statement that to consider the crown that he had just laid aside to be given to the one who came back from battle victorious, who had done their hardest effort and their greatest advancement to see that victory would be won. And to him that crown would be placed upon. The battle was enjoined and they victoriously came home. And as they all gathered around that table there that said to, to the most worthy one of his noblemen walked up to that table and he took that crown off of the table and then he proceeded toward Philippe and he placed it upon his head. And he made this statement, Thou, O king, thou art most worthy. 
when we recognize our sin and we understand the holiness of God, I think it's, it's at moments like that that we can say, I am not worthy, but He is. And when Jesus returns and we have this full understanding of who He is, this Alpha and Omega, this beginning and this end, this one that encompasses all things, it's at that point that we will take off the crowns that we have put on our own heads and we will lay them at His feet and we will take off the crowns that others have put on our heads and we will lay them at His feet because He ultimately is the only one worthy of this because of His glory. Now thirdly, the beginning and the end of all things can be seen through the scope and the response of the Alpha and the Omega. Again, let's go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. And we know that, behold, He is coming with the clouds. Now listen. And every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Now, during his incarnation, the glory of Christ was veiled. Except for that momentary time that they were up on that mountain when he was transfigured right before James and and John and Peter's eyes. And, And they got a glimpse just briefly of the glory of Jesus as he was there talking with Moses and Elijah. And it was amazing to them to experience that. But in his second coming, it's not going to be just three who secretly go up on a mountain with him. It is going to be every eye will behold Him. And understand there's no clarification here. It's not every eye who believes. It's not only every eye who doesn't believe. It's it's not every eye who literally sees. But every eye will behold Him. And they will see His glory. And it will be obvious to all of humanity. Paul says that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess Him. See, there won't be a single person on earth with whom his glory will go unnoticed. And here's the second Old Testament citation that that John makes. It's out of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And this is what Zechariah writes. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. I mean, what a beautiful image we see here. We see both the image of the suffering Christ and the conquering king combined together in one here in Revelation. He's not only going to be this victorious one, but he's also the one who suffered for us so that we could have our sins forgiven. Now, now this part of the Old Testament Messianic prophecy seems to be ignored during Jesus' day. But it wasn't until after his death, and, and Paul rightly so brings it into play when he, when he, mentions, in first, uh, when he mentions in the first chapter of Colossians, verse 26, he, he says that this aspect of who he is, his death and his burial and his resurrection, he says, man, this was a mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but now it's revealed to the saints. John now divides those who are going to see this second coming into two groups. He divides them into those who pierced him and those who belong to all the tribes of the earth. Now let's look at those who pierced him to begin with. 
I mean, the statement isn't referring to the Roman soldiers who put the spear in his side. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about his people who had just taken him to court and have lied about him and testified against him in, in, in blasphemy themselves and in slander. He's speaking about Israel and how they are the ones who instigated his death. Now, Peter affirms this, that the Jewish people were the ones who were responsible for the execution of Jesus. And in chapter 2, as the, as the church is beginning to blow up the scene, Peter begins to preach. And in his sermon, he makes this statement beginning in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption." Maybe that was the trumpet of the Lord. How do you think? <laughs> it says, you have made known to me the paths of light. And you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then over in Acts chapter 3, Peter also makes a statement. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now again, the notes in my ESV study Bible make some statements about here. It says, though one may not understand fully how God's sovereign ordination of events can be compatible with human responsibility for evil, both are clearly affirmed here and in many other passages of Scripture. Peter quoted in this passage of Scripture from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, as a text pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. Noting that David spoke of God, not abandoning him to death. But then he reasoned that because David died, the psalm must have been speaking about the one of his descendants. Since Jesus is the only one who conquered death and is a descendant of David, he must be the promised Messiah whom David foresaw. Now John describes the second group as all the tribes of the earth. Now what he's referencing here is you and me. We weren't Jewish. I mean, I'm not Jewish by birth. I don't have that connection in my life, heritage-wise. So if you're not Jewish, part of the Israelite nation and, and genealogy, you're a Gentile. 
You're all the other tribes of the earth in which he's speaking to. Everybody's going to be a part of this. Like the Jewish people, the Gentiles too are going to wail and mourn over Christ. Now some of that mourning may come because we can't believe that, that we have repented and he's accepted us. And others are going to wail and mourn out of terror because they've rejected That word to wail or mourn comes from a Greek word, kopto, which means to cut. That makes no sense to me when I just hear that from an English standpoint. To wail and mourn means to cut? When have you ever been to a funeral and they started cutting each other? Where, where does this come from? Well, it comes from the pagan worship. Now we can take a little trip back in history and we can go to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 28. records the, the frenzied panic of the prophets of Baal. And, and it says, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. See, it was their desperate attempt to get Baal to notice them. And so they are wailing and mourning and crying and cutting themselves and causing themselves to bleed so that their God would somehow recognize them and then intervene on their behalf. Wailing and mourning. Now, this type of action is specifically denied the people of Israel. God doesn't want them to, to come before him the same way the pagans are. And so he specifically, you go into Leviticus, some of the other books, they're told not to do that. But we need to have deep sorrow, but not to the point where we're going to get his attention by cutting ourselves. If you don't do anything, I'm going to kill myself. The Gentile mourners, for the most part, will be prompted by terror and not repentance. You see, most people in this world are not going to go to heaven. Did you hear me? Most people in this world are not going to go to heaven. It's not a universal salvation. Matter of fact, where most people are going down that broad road that leads to hell. There is a narrow road, a narrow gate that very few will go down is what Jesus tells us. But somehow we have convinced ourselves that everybody goes. But that's not the truth. When are we going to mourn over those people who are lost and who are dying and who are going to hell? Because when He appears, it is too late. And your loved one, whether it be your spouse or your child or your cousin, whoever it is, if they don't have a relationship with Jesus, they can't hang on to your hand and you drag them in. It's not happening at that point. Now, having given a response of both believers and unbelievers to Christ's second coming, John now interjects with, with his own response, using the strongest words possible to affirm, both in Greek and Hebrew, that he writes here in John chapter one, in Revelation 1. He uses the word ne, which means even so, or so be it. 
Let nothing else happen. And then he concludes it by using the word amen, which is a Hebrew word, which means let it be. He's coming. And John is pleading for the Lord Jesus to return. And we've got to be ready. We've got to continue to work out our salvation until that time. We can't take a break and relax. Back on March 22nd, 1987, during the NCAA Midwest Regional Championship Games that were going on, uh, LSU, Louisiana, oh, over here, somebody's really happy here, all right? LSU was playing the Hoosiers led by Bobby Knight, all right? And, and the, here, here's kind of how the game went. Up to halftime, the Hoosiers were winning. But in the second half, LSU came back on strong and they took a lead. And they were going out. But in the midst of all this, one of the guys who was commentating, he observed something. And he made this statement about the LSU basketball players. They're watching the clock. And they quit playing. Because their focus and their attention was on the time and not on what they were doing. And even though they had come back after the second half and had a good lead, Bobby Knight's Hoosiers won by one point and then later went on to win the national championship that year against Syracuse. We can be staring up looking for the signs of the times and focusing on all that, but without doing any of the work that's required of us right now, and we're going to miss it. We've got to stay active. And as we wait for Jesus' promised return, we are not so much to be watching the clock, people, but we are to be diligent servants during this time that we have left. Now, finally, the last thing about the beginning and the end can be seen through the certainty of the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 1.8. Here's where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, Alpha and Omega emphasizes God's omniscience. We've talked a little bit about that being part of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the first letter and the last letter and all that, but you have to understand that from a Hebrew concept, all knowledge is contained within our alphabet. And the ability for us to communicate. It doesn't matter what language you speak, all your knowledge is contained within the alphabet. That's the only way we know how to describe things. Is by putting it in words. This title of Alpha and Omega sets him up as sovereign Lord over everything that takes place in the entire course of human history. Romans 11, 33 through 36 says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen? Now as the one who is and who was and who is to come, 
This God's transcendent eternal presence is not confined by time or space like we are or any feature of an event in them. He tells Moses, you can't put me in a box. I'm not confined. And he's not even confined by time. There's nothing of which he is unaware. Thus, the promise of his second coming is guaranteed. Revelation 4, his divine attributes and his greatness, they're on display. So here, here Jesus summons John because he wants to give him an image of what it is to come and what we're looking forward to. All right, So he takes him in the spirit to heaven to receive this vision portraying uh, the future working out of history and, and his victory. Now, these foreseen events in the book of Revelation, they, they take place in the church's history, really beginning right there in the first century as John is writing. And obviously it's still happening because we're still here. So Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had, a, had, a, had, a, had an appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And he, seated on each throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns in their heads. And, and from the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder... And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, what do they do? They fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before him in the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created now with the 24 thrones and 24 elders, he is tying in the Old Testament relationship of people of Israel and the New Testament relationship of the people of the church with the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples, bringing these all together the same way he does with the, with the 12 gates and the 12 foundations. And John is suggesting this array of colors of heaven. Not that the colors specifically mean anything independently, but just the splendor and the majesty and the glory. glory and the beauty of God and what he has made there. And John is trying to give us his best 
way of describing what it's going to be like. Finally, the designation of God in Revelation 1 as the Almighty affirms His omnipotence. Since He is all-powerful, nothing can hinder Him from carrying out His will. I mean, there's nothing that could ever prevent Jesus from coming back to earth. He's going to come, and nothing will keep Him. Jesus came the first time in humiliation, but He's going to return in exaltation. Jesus came the first time to be crucified, but He will return to vindicate Himself against His enemies the second time. Jesus came the first time to serve, but He will be served when He returns. He came the first time to suffer, but when He returns, He is coming to conquer. And nothing will stand in His way. I mean, the challenge here in the book of Revelation is for every person to be ready for His return. He is, from the very beginning, planning this. Even before creation began, this is all a part of His plan. And He is a fulfillment in all of this. Listen to what Isaiah 46, 8-10 through 10 says. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things, times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And we can trust and rely on Him. If you've not put your faith in Him, I, I can't figure out why. I mean, for the life of me, I, I don't know why. How anybody would want to stand in opposition to Him. And how do you answer for the things of this world? Life itself. But from beginning of time and even before he planned to have you in a relationship with him. But the question is do you want it? There's nothing better. Let's stand together.